1: Listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and on this program we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then, of course, we ask them to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. And I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Tracy K. Smith who won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for her collection Life on Mars. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you. So the poem you chose to read uh, is a poem called Crowning by Kevin Young. Now tell us, if you wouldn't mind, what it was about this particular poem that uh, drew your attention and took your fancy.
0: Oh, I remember when the the poem came out in the magazine reading it and just feeling like I'd come face-to-face with a description of childbirth that was at once utterly convincing, although I hadn't experienced it yet, and otherworldly and beautiful. There's so much um, music and rhythm and and also a wonderful sense of, of the other kind of knowledge that the child comes into the world with that runs through the poem.
1: Indeed, one would need a little insight a little background information to know that the word crowning has a very particular uh, significance in this context.
0: Right. I think I might have been pregnant with my daughter when this poem came out. So I was familiar with that word and I also had a lot of fear about what I was about to experience. And somehow this poem, although it doesn't, doesn't make childbirth seem at all easy, gave me the sense that this was going to be one of the most beautiful and possible experiences, if that makes sense.
1: So crowning, in fact, referring to the, the crown of the head, oh, right, the, the fontanelle, moment. the point at which it begins to point its way, yeah, if indeed it comes the, head first.
0: The child is visible at the moment. Now that I've been through this, I remember my husband saying, that was the moment when I realized that there really was someone there. <laughs> this, this wasn't just a, a dream.
1: One of the things one might say before we hear it, though we'll have more to say after, is that there are probably, for better or worse, and I'm sure it's for worse, few enough poems by males about the business in which they have taken some part, I suppose, of uh, children coming into the world.
0: Yeah. I'm not really sure why that is. Maybe it's something that, you know, we just automatically assume women have the sole ownership of. And I think that the, the reverence that the speaker of this poem has was also something that was really compelling. And, and it creates a sense that this is, you know, there's one person doing most of the work, but there's someone that's so beholden and that's so invested in, you know, willing and wishing and observing this, this other being arriving that, um, I don't know, I, I feel like this could be a model for, for fatherhood in a way.
1: You know, I think so many of us were uh, brought up in the era of the John Wayne Western where childbirth, certainly in the Western genre, took place off-stage, off-screen. And uh, the only thing that a man might shout out was more hot water. (laughs) And this was something that involved only women. And that has really changed profoundly.
0: It really has in the culture. I mean, now I think it's just, expected that both parents would be participating but it's funny though I, I think about the the way that childbirth is represented in popular culture especially like romantic comedies and it's something that we still I think seem to have a lot of fear of you know we have to laugh at it in some ways and we also have to exaggerate the fright and the frustration of it when in fact that's part of something that I think this poem shows us is larger
1: you know, I think things may have gone too far in the other direction. In my own case, when my first child was born, the attending doctor turned to me and said, would you like to cut the cord? And I said, thanks very much. I won't bother doing that. That's your job. But in any case, let's hear this poem, Crowning, uh, by Kevin Young, read here by Tracy K. Smith.
0: Crowning. Now that knowing means nothing... Now that you are more born than being, more awake than awaited, since I've seen your hair deep inside mother, a glimpse, grass in late winter, early spring, watching your mother's pursed, throbbing, purpled power, her pushing you for one whole hour, two, almost three, almost out, maybe never, animal smell and peat, breath and sweat, and mulch matter. And at once you descend or drive, are driven by mother's body, by her will and brilliance, by bowel, by wanting, and your hair peering as if it could see. And I saw you storming forth, taproot, your cap of hair half in, half out, and wait, hold it there, the doctors say. And she squeezing my hand, her face full of fire, then groaning your face out like a flower. Blood bloom, crocused into air. Shoulders and the long cord still rooting you to each other, to the other world, into this afterlife among us living. The cord I cut like an iris, pulsing. Then you, wet against mother's chest, still purple, not blue, not yet red. No cry, warming now, now opening your eyes, Midnight blue In the blue-black dawn
1: That's Crowning by Kevin Young read there by Tracy K. Smith and one of the things I remarked on when I first read this poem and I certainly remark on now as I hear you read it, Tracy is the fact that it's um, a single sentence and it actually takes a certain amount of uh, exertion it involves some exertion just to... Almost give birth to that sentence, yeah. and it's almost as if one is involved in some mimesis of the uh,
0: of the activity of giving birth. Oh, absolutely! I feel that any time a poem is one sentence long, there's a deliberate attempt to manipulate time that the poet has chosen to make. And here, you know, we're we're told that this is a, a series of events that take almost three hours, and and the the way that we move forward and, and backwards at the same time, maybe two steps forward, one step back, as the saying goes, through the sense of repetition and rhythm, I, I really felt a, a really wonderful sense of that almost arrival that the poem is really perched on.
1: And what's wonderful about the end of it is that there's such a, an uncertainty, it's almost uh, the kind of uh, revision Uh, that Elizabeth Bishop gets involved in in so often in her poems, where she goes in one direction with uh, still purple, not blue, not yet red. The urge to be absolutely accurate here. And then uh, that interesting turn on the word midnight, uh, which of course is time, as you say, Mm -hmm. but also it turns out to be a colour, midnight blue. But the line turns on that.
0: Right, and we end in that sense of the blue-black dawn, which you know feels like an hour in between hours in a way. Why is it that babies are almost always born in the middle of the night? <laughs> That's what it seems like. But, but there's that moment of, of um, touching down in the world when the world isn't even really awake yet, You know that, that I think is really gorgeous. And maybe it's even connected to the sense of the child. It's becoming human in a way. It's still purple, not blue, not yet, red, no cry. And then those breaths we can sense coming
1: beautiful so that was crowning by kevin young which was published by the way in the february 23rd 2009 issue of the magazine
0: hi i'm deborah treesman fiction editor of the new yorker each week on the writer's voice podcast new yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine you can hear from authors like colson whitehead
1: Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch.
0: Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favourite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Now, in the September 21st, 2009 issue of The New Yorker, we published your poem, Alternate Take, Leave on Helm which you're going to read for us now. But before you do so, is there anything you'd like to say about it? You might remind us, uh, the few people who are left in the world who are not familiar with the name, Levon Helm, uh, to say a word or two about him.
0: Unfortunately, we lost Levon Helm not too many years ago, but he was the magnificent drummer for... I I encountered him first in the band, The Band. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Bob Dylan's band. Or the band, indeed, before they were Bob Dylan's band.
0: And this is a poem that's really just about what it describes: frustration at writing, and then looking up and realizing I'm in the presence of this amazing voice. You know, just the music that I was listening to as I was composing, and deciding to try and write my way toward what I was hearing and what what seemed to come alive in, in Helms' voice, which is this really wonderful, gravelly, earnest, almost gut bucket quality at times.
1: The word gravelly, you know, has been used often enough, of voices, but it's somehow particularly opposite uh, vis-à-vis Lee Von Helm.
0: Well, absolutely. Not only, I mean, in terms of the, the rural background that he comes from, but also he survived throat cancer. And so there's a sense that the throat as an instrument was something that had changed as well.
1: May we listen to the poem?
0: Absolutely. Alternate take, Lee Von Helm. I've been beating my head all day long on the same six lines, snapped off and whittled to nothing, like the nub of a pencil, chewed up and smoothed over, yellow paint flecking my teeth. And this whole time, a hot wind's been swatting down my door, spat from his mouth and landing smack against my ear. All day, pounding the devil out of six lines and coming up dry, while he drives donuts through my mind's backwoods with that dirt road voice of his, kicking up gravel like a runaway Buick. He asks, should I come in with that backbeat? And whatever those six lines were bothered by skitters off like water in hot grease. Come in with your lips stretched tight and that pig-eyed grin, bass mallet socking it to the drum. Lay it down like you know you know how. Shoulders hiked nice and high, chin tipped back, so the song has to climb its way out, like a man, from a mine.
1: Beautiful, this line about "Should I come in with that backbeat?" is a quotation from an alternate take. Yeah. I assume
0: it's an alternate take of the song "Daniel and the Sacred Harp," and you know I've never verified that it's actually his voice, but I, I want—I so wanted it to be. Daniel, Daniel, and the sacred hall Dancing through the clover Should I come in with that
1: backbeat? Now, did our famous fact-checkers no, at the New happened. Yorker not verify it?
0: It was not verified. It wasn't? I, or maybe they verified it without asking me. And Probably did. And determined that, of course, I was accurate. Um, one funny thing that I did get, I guess the house style, is to spell the word donut, D O U G H N U T. Of course. And it appears in the middle of this poem as D-O-N-U-T-S. And I, I was really happy and grateful that I was allowed to leave it in what felt to me like more of that hard scrabble spelling.
1: Let me ask you a question about that, uh, because I'm sure some of our listeners would be intrigued by this uh, fact that I've just alluded to, that we do indeed uh, check facts in the poems, not only in the poems, but even in some of our political pieces, we check the facts. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let me
0: ask you, how do you feel about that? I think it's it's endearing in a way. And, and also I like that there's obviously a little bit of, of room, wiggle room, as it were, in, in in a poem. But poems do sometimes deal in the material of the real world. And, you know, as much as poetic license is important, sometimes it's nice to know what that real material is at least rooted in, even if we're going to move away from it. I think
1: that's right, and there are a couple of famous instances in the history of poetry where it would have been much better had the poem benefited from (laughs) a little fact-checking, a few things that have gone badly wrong. So in any case, anything else you'd like to say about the uh, the leave-on helm? This line that you use, the image that you use of the, uh, the song climbing its way out like a man from a mine seems... Fretted in uh, all sorts of ways. I mean, it's not quite prepared for in the body of the poem. It does come out of nowhere, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it seems it's very, very uh, powerful.
0: Well, the first thing I'll say is sometimes when I'm writing, I try and just listen to the unconscious, so it wasn't a planned line. But I feel like I had um, two things were probably happening. The first was the kind of... Um, kind of redundant work that was happening in the first two stanzas of the poem that me, you know, I, the poet, was doing, trying to, to write my way into something that did, wouldn't come. But the second half of the poem kind of shifts into these rural images, right? There's backwoods and dirt roads and an old Buick, and somehow the 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 characters that I imagined inhabit that zone could just as easily have been, you know, working in a mine or, or at least living the kinds of lives that are characterized by that kind of necessity.
1: So in that sense it doesn't really come from left field at all. It's off a piece with what one might perceive as one possible milieu, perhaps somewhere in West Virginia, something like that. Yeah.
0: But then the other thing is that although I knew the story of of Helms' battle with illness, I wasn't thinking about it. And so this was in a way an image that I think was also drawing from that sense of of the body in peril and the song being something that that somehow is going to find its way out despite what the odds against it might have been.
1: Thank you very much indeed. We really appreciate your taking the time, Tracy K. Smith, to share some of your insights, uh, both into Crowning by Kevin Young, as well as your own poem, Alternate Take, Leave on Helm. For the moment, I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, bye-bye. Tracy K. Smith's latest book of poems is Life on Mars, and Kevin Young's new collection of poems, Book of Hours, comes out in March. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You can also hear poems from the magazine read by the authors in the digital edition for tablets and phones, available at no extra charge for magazine subscribers from the App Store or from Google Play. Theme music is The Pentagree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Owen Agnew for Curtis Fox Productions and newyorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison.
0: I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour.